Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen, amen, church. You may grab a seat, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing our series by faith. By faith. It's good to worship with you all this morning. Listen, if, uh, if you enjoy an overwhelming, soul-suffocating amount of rules to follow, you may not enjoy the sermon or the series. Because it's everything but that. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, starting verse 1. If you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Chains of Legalism. Chains of Legalism. And listen, those that have a hard copy Bible, I know it's rare these days, but some of you like myself, like just a hard copy, use the table of contents, man. That's what it's there for. Ain't no shame. I'm telling you. Chains of legalism. And so let me do a recap. This is week three we've been in by faith series. And so week one, we covered the gospel. That's what we covered. Week two, we covered the gospel. Today, you know what we're going to cover? Yeah, y'all are quick, and you can talk in church, it's okay. The gospel. The gospel, it's rooted in Galatians, it's rooted throughout the entirety of Scripture, it's the gospel, meaning good news. And here's the gospel, I think we know it, but we forget about it, and we take it for granted a lot of times, that there is a God. We get there? There's a God. We just have to start there sometimes. There's a God who loves us, created us in his image, and desires to have the relationship with us, to know him and to be known by him. There is a God who created you distinctly, uniquely, beautifully, wonderfully, just like you are. And yet we have this issue called sin. And sin separates us. So we can't have the relationship with him that we were created to have. And to make things worse, we can't do anything about it. But God did. Jesus lived the perfect life that we were expected to but couldn't, to die the death that we should have in our place, raised on the third day, meaning payment accepted and satisfied for us so that whoever believes that somehow, someway, his blood on the cross counted for you has eternal life and that right relationship with God is restored through Jesus' blood on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. And so we cannot get tired of hearing the good news of the gospel because we're surrounded by everything anti that all the time. And so what we need to see is that everything stems, everything we do stems from the gospel. And this is our whole aim for this year. We've talked about it a few times now, and we're still getting going, but this 12-1 life of worship, 12-1 life of worship, this is our aim for, as a church this year. It comes from Romans 12-1. In the view of mercies of God, we are urged to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our true worship. So that means everything we do is to worship the Lord, not just on an hour on Sunday mornings. It just saturates our life, but that stems from the gospel. Flows from your love for God, not trying to earn love from God. And what we're going to see here is the freedom of the gospel has always been under attack. And it was under attack in the church of Galatia. This letter that we're looking at called Galatians 
is the Apostle Paul wrote this Holy Holy Spirit-inspired letter to the church in Galatia. And the gospel was under attack. And what Paul is going to point out is that this is not a new issue. Look at verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to Revelation and presented to them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was compelled. But not even Titus was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the, what's the word? Spy on the what? Freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. So let's pause there just for a minute. Because what Paul is emphasizing here is the fact that the church was established on the grace-based gospel of Jesus, not a worthless, works-based, false gospel derived from, from false brothers. Meaning, these men were claiming to be Christians and were not. And were deceiving many. Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone says to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Meaning there's some people that say they're Christians and are not. This should be sobering. Because a lot of people are doing things and think they're very Christian-like, but are missing Christ. A lot of people know things about Christ and are missing Christ. It's a heart posture, not a head knowledge. What a scary place that is to be. Thinking we're doing all the right things. We got the church lingo down. We do all the right church stuff. And yet we're missing the heart posture and aim of our intentions and motivations the whole time. And it's interesting here that Paul took Titus along with him to go visit the leaders in Jerusalem. That's noteworthy because Titus was a Gentile also known as the uncircumcised, meaning he didn't keep the law. It's a big no-no. What do you mean you don't keep the law? Don't you know you have to do those things in order to be saved? He wasn't circumcised. And so he went with Paul to meet with the leaders, Jewish people, the circumcised, the law keepers. But these were the early church leaders, the ones that had been discipled by Jesus himself. Specifically, we'll see is. Peter, James, and John. And even then, standing in front and with in this conversation, Titus still was not compelled to be circumcised, meaning not compelled to do this thing in order to be saved. Why? Because the early church leaders were fused together in fighting for the freedom that is found in the gospel. They were united And opposing circumcision on Titus would have been denying the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. And what we need to see is what they knew here. I think what they kept pointing back to is the gospel has always been grace-based. Saving from sinning has always been God's choosing and doing, not our working and pursuing. Matter of fact, the Bible says that we don't pursue God. 
Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all went astray like sheep, choosing our own way. That's us. That's all of us. We don't pursue God. We pursue ourselves. And sheep is not a term of endearment. Do you realize that? It's not a good thing. We all like sheep. Sheep are dumb. And on top of that, defenseless. That's not a good combination, right? Dumb and defenseless. Their defense mechanism against wolves is huddled together, right? Buffet. That's all the wolves seeing. But the Bible repeatedly tells us that we're like sheep and that we all go astray. When you see the gospel throughout God's word, the Bible, it's obvious that our works are worthless in attempting to earn forgiveness, leaving us helplessly, hopelessly in our self-righteous goodness. Helpless, hopeless. This is for the third, third week in a row, I'm going to keep saying until we really get Isaiah 64, 6. When trying to earn something from God, when trying to earn salvation, trying to earn anything mixture of us doing, it says all of us have become like something unclean. All of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. And we see the gospel all throughout biblical history, beginning at the beginning. God's grace in the garden. I think we miss that sometimes. God said, hey, there's one rule. He created man, put him in the garden, there's one rule. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but there's one you must stay off. Stay out of. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you certainly will die. One rule. Seems pretty easy out of this fantastic environment. Just don't eat the one tree. Now, I was thinking about this yesterday. Just yesterday, I had uh, my little guys, my five-year-old Zeke, out in the driveway doing chalk. And so my two-year-old Lottie wanted to come play and hang out with him. So she wanted to do chalk like her older brother. And so Zeke made his masterpiece, right, and didn't want Lottie to color in it. So I said, Lottie, you have this whole driveway to color on. It's yours to color, with the exception of this one area. Do not color in this one area. And I could just, the rest of it, it was just a fight there on. It was a gravitational pull the whole time to color all over Zeke. So I'm constantly trying to divert and play referee, and it's amazing, but like, isn't that what we do? Aren't we just enticed to do the things that we know we're not supposed to? Well, so was Adam, and so was Eve. They fell in temptation, that one thing. But what drove their temptation even further was the first question, right? By the enemy, the enemy's strategy, did God really say? Did God really say? Are you prompting the emotions that's in us? And then God really say it was just the catalyst to tip us over. And so they did. They ate from the fruit that they weren't supposed to, the tree that they weren't supposed to. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. And in Joshua's simplified translation, and jacked everything up, right? It messed everything up. I mean, we get frustrated the world we live in. It's because sin. This wasn't the way God established things. We messed it up. 
It's interesting what happens after they ate the fruit. Genesis 3 tells us that their eyes were opened, meaning their eyes shifted from God and his goodness and his provisions to themselves and their own issues. And it says they saw they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In this sorry attempt to cover their own sin and shame, their own works trying to cover themselves because they felt the weight when their eyes were open, when their gaze shifted to their own issues, their own self, their own sinfulness, their own shame, and they tried to do something about it, to which they couldn't. This sorry covering that they created for themselves, their own works. And it says God did this in Genesis 3.21. says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. It's funny how we can just read over things sometimes. Skins. Where did God get skins to cover man's sin and shame? One of his animals that he created. Death came. Sacrifice. Covering their sin and shame by way of sacrifice, blood spilt. And something that they could not do. And so from the very beginning, we see God's grace in covering sin and shame despite our own efforts. And that's when we come to Jesus, because the whole Old Testament points towards the coming Messiah, Christ, Jesus himself. So the sacrificial system was put in place because we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we can't save ourselves. So we have the sacrifice system to be forgiven of our sins, all pointing to the coming one who would fully and finally pay the price for all sin forever. That's why we don't sacrifice spot anymore, right? Fluffy. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We won't have to. Jesus says in Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and save the lost. What's interesting about the lost, I don't know if you've ever been lost before, but you don't know you're lost. Have you experienced that? I took my older kids when they were younger and had small legs to Virginia Beach, my wife and I, into this state park called First Landing. A lot of trees and things, so they have trails. You can ride through the trees. And so we took our bikes out one day, just going through the trails. And I've been around enough state parks long enough to know if you just follow a trail long enough, it'll circle back to where you started. So that's what we did. I didn't have a map. Who needs a map? Definitely need directions. We're just going to hit it. So we got out early and just started rolling on our bikes. Pedaling, pedaling, pedaling. We're still on this trail. I'm like, oh, my goodness. We've got to be getting somewhere. You know, a couple hours in, a couple miles in. My kids' little legs were just spent and still peddling until we came to a T at a major road intersection that we had no idea where we were at, and there was nowhere else to go. We were lost. didn't even know it. And so I said, kids, that was fun, right? Let's do it again. We had to turn back around and go right back the other way, pedal and pedal and pedal. It was a long day. Not super ex- exciting, to say the least. But the point was, I was lost and didn't even know it until I knew it. Jesus came to seek and save the lost because we don't even know we're lost. We need God to grab us and pull us in. That's what he does and did. And so when he said, it is finished on the cross, bowing his head, it says he gave up his spirit. He, it wasn't taken from him. His life was surrendered, sacrificed by his own will, by his own doing. Because that's the only way we can have our sins paid for and new life to begin in him 
through Jesus alone. And so they, these church leaders here in Galatians, knew the gospel. And so as they talked about the gospel and Paul's relaying this experience with Titus, Titus wasn't persuaded, compelled, because it's the gospel. We don't have to do anything. And so the question has to come up then and now, how does doctrinal division and gospel confusion occur in the first place? I got two thoughts since you asked me. I'll tell you. Two thoughts. One, here it says people infiltrated their ranks, teaching what I would call add-ons instead of adherence to. And it goes back to the original question, did God really stay? Well, he did. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes will not perish but have everlasting life. In John 6, Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. In John 8, Therefore I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus said, I am in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we have eternal life? How are we forgiven of our sins? How do we have that right relationship restored with God? Believe. Period. But yet, it seems too easy, right? If we're honest. But you mean I don't have to stop doing stuff? Because we know we have issues, right? You I mean I don't have to stop this? I don't have to stop you name whatever junk you're into. I don't have to stop rooting for the Washington Commanders. No, you can keep that garbage too. Like, we can do this. I'm still mourning that football season's over with. Believe. That's it. But instead, we teach add-ons. So two, I think people were accepting instead of authenticating the message being taught. Accepting instead of authenticating the message being taught. Again, did God really say? It goes back to this over and over. We'll see in every part of our life. Did God really say? It starts with the temptation not to believe God's word. Think about it. Just culturally today. Let me just touch on some maybe sensitive topics since we're here. Premarital sex. I mean, did God really say... Right? Do I really have to say I have to make a commitment? Don't we have to, you know, test things out, kick the tires? That's the things boys say. Men make the commitment. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, that God did really say that He created, yes, sex is a good thing, good grace given gift by God in the covenant of marriage. Nothing to be shameful of. God created. But with boundaries that are healthy and God glorifying. We're the ones that twist it, but like, God, God really say, he knows my heart. Like, uh, he knows I'm, I, I'm thinking about marrying her. We're married in our heart. That don't fly. Put the ring on the finger. I mean, marriage, what marriage is? How about lust? I've always heard as a young man growing up, you can look, just don't touch. It's wrong. It's wrong. Talks about drunkenness, yeah. Bible talks about drunkenness as a sin. Anger. We've talked about it a few weeks ago. Anger. You know, but you don't know the way I was raised. It's okay. I got a little anger issues. Anger, it's a sin. The point being, we have to authenticate 
and not just accept any message we hear. What does the Bible say? And that's why I love Acts 17 so much. I love it because there's a principle there that we all need to take to heart. In verse 11, it says, The people were more noble character than those in Thessalonica, that since they received the word with eagerness, so the word being taught, the Bible, received it with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. So what they do, they heard the message, but they didn't say, yeah, it sounds good, makes sense, let's do it. They went and took the word and verified. That's where we fall short sometimes. Like, we'll go hear this preacher or this teacher and just like, yeah, it sounds good. Because they quote a Bible verse, but we don't just go back and look at the context. We don't read the chapter before or ahead. We don't just, we take it and run with it. And this is why we fall into the doctrinal divisions and gospel confusions that we do. That's why everything we do, we go back to the scriptures. In the life of this church, everything that we do, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know we use a lot of the Bible. Our missional communities are starting up tonight. Guess what we're going to look at? The Bible. Our discipleship groups. Guess what curriculum we use? The Bible. Like, we don't use any curriculum. We go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say because the Bible governs our lives. We go to the Bible. We talk about church membership here, and we talk about through this morning connecting point. But this is a valid, another just healthy part of church membership that serves as the gate to protect the sheep. We talk more about that through church membership and connecting point. But what we see throughout this letter is this combating legalism, these add-ons. Added requirements to be a Christian or even to live as a Christian do nothing but enslave and frustrate. I think we've experienced that at some level. If you've been around church life enough, you've experienced some things that were add-ons that were nothing but enslaving and frustrating. So let me give you a couple of add-ons to be aware of. Because I think we don't have the same temptation and persuasion that they did in church in Galatia because we're not requiring circumcision for salvation. But what are we requiring sometimes that may not be biblical? What do we add on to faith in Jesus? What do we add on to following Jesus? Are there things that we need to be aware of? I'd say, yeah, two things. When it comes to be accepted by God, it's add-ons meaning faith plus. Like those things that we have to do. Like faith is good, but you have to do these things as well. You have to be aware. I mean, there's still teachings out there that faith plus baptism. It's not true. It's not biblical. Faith plus going door to door in my white shirts. You have to do those things. It's not biblical. Faith plus you have to be in this denomination. Baptize an infant in this denomination or else you're not a part of the church. That's not biblical. And this is what sparked, those that don't know it, 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church was teaching things that were contrary to what the Bible actually said, legalistic add-ons, enslaving principles. And so Martin Luther wanted to debate some of these things, 95 Theses. And that sparked the revolution we know as a Protestant Reformation. That's why we have so many different denominations now, not just Catholicism. And that's why we are considered the large umbrella of Protestant, because we're still protesting those things that are anti-Bible. 
That kind of makes sense? We've got to be able to watch the add-ons that we do when it comes to be accepted by God. And number two, obedience to God. That means the add-ons, faith equals this. Like, if you have faith, if you're a follower of Christ, then you are doing these things. If you're not doing these things, you're not a follower of Christ. There's a temptation there. I've said it a couple times, but I think it's so true. The phraseology, it's been worded differently, that don't smoke, drink, or chew, and don't hang with people that do, right? This is the mentality of Christian life. There's a terminology, sanctification. Sanctification is your, could be, two things. It's positional and progressive. So positional th- sanctification is a Bible terminology. just means you've been born again by, by belief. You're new in Christ. That's positional. You've been placed in Christ Jesus, declared a son or daughter of God by faith. But there's a progressive sanctification. This is where we have, to have a lot of grace with one another. It means the ongoing Work growing in spiritual maturity is ongoing. And we said it again, this progressive sanctification, the work that God's doing in your life as a believer of Christ, is over time, not overnight. That's important. Happens over time, not overnight. As soon as I became a Christian, I wasn't just downloaded with all Bible knowledge, right? And all theology figured out. It's progressive. But what does God use to help us in our spiritual journey? Number one, time in God's word. So how's that look like for you? Are you reading the Bible? The Bible is given from God about Jesus for you. Are you spending time in it? Two, are you spending time with God's people? Listen, we try to go back to the Bible for everything we do in this church. And so we're a church of small groups, not a church that does small groups. And there's a difference. We are to be with God's people. We need one another. And three, being about God's business. So are you serving? Are you on mission daily? Being sent to where God's leading and guiding. I think what we need to know and we forget is faith isn't the finish line. So many times we think we have faith and things are kind of done. Now I just get to relax and enjoy this relationship with Jesus. And by all means, enjoy the relationship with Jesus. But God has called you to a work flowing from your love for God. We tend to treat everything after saving faith as optional. And there's the danger when we talk about don't do anything, and yet we're called to do stuff. It depends the heart motivation and posture behind it. Are you trying to earn something from God, or are you flowing from your love for God? Jesus said in John 3, Truly I tell you, unless someone born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again means you're starting a new life. That makes sense? So you're starting something. You're starting following Jesus. And that's just it. We're following Jesus. In the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, teaching the option of what I've commanded. Right? He says, teaching to obey, observe all that I've commanded. Let me give you three points of gospel encouragement in a believer's life, stemming from the scriptures we're seeing. Three points, quickly. Number one, gospel brings liberty. We saw in verse 4 that this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So beware of the chains of legalism. And just to be clear, holding to the commands of Scripture are not legalism. Does that make sense? 
Like if God commands it and I observe it, that's not legalism. Holding others accountable to commands of Scripture is not legalism. It's when we add on to those is legalism. So say this is sin, for sure in the Bible, right? Whatever this is. And then we put a fence around it, and we call that sin too. That's legalism. You tracking there? Okay, I think I lost some folks. Sin is sin. But when we start doing things like, okay, don't even get close to sin, and then calling these sin also, that's legalism. I think we get confused sometimes. Holding to the standard of Scripture is not legalism. Adding on to it definitely is. Let me give you some examples. I used to be a part of a church that, we, that was established in the 1800s. I wasn't there when it was established, in case you were wondering, but it was. But we found some old church documents. And in the church document, it said something along the lines of, do not go to theaters and no dancing. And then Footloose came out, right? So <laughs> it's interesting. And I don't remember seeing any Bible verses associated with any of those things. Now, is there wisdom? Maybe. I mean, some of you all need to leave your 80s broke dance moves at home. Nobody wants to see that. But therein lies the danger of legalism. I've heard things around church life. I've been around church life long enough. Don't go to bars or breweries. Don't watch R-rated movies. Don't get tattoos or piercings. Now, listen, are there wisdom in some of those things for some people? Absolutely. But we need to begin with the Bible and not our bias. Romans 14, people go to, because it's titled like this, the sin of a conscience. Meaning, if something is sent to me, but not necessarily in the Bible, then I'd be very, very careful not to project that onto you. For example, there's some things that I don't watch because I'm influenced visually. And so that, for me, that can lead to a sinful thought process. But that'd be very wrong for me if said movies show I always tell you, because I am tempted to sin when I watch it, that you can't watch it either. That's legalism. We go back to the Bible, not our bias. And what's interesting, when we start talking about all this, it's interesting how we, they missed then and we miss now what the law is there for. God gave his people the law. But the law was never meant to be a ladder to climb or a checklist to earn your way into heaven. That wasn't the intent. The law was meant to be more of a mirror than a map. It's not a map to follow. It's a mirror to show you that you can't. When you see all the requirements God has, we can't keep those things perfectly to show us we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that's by God's grace. Now, he creates laws and things that are good, but they also show us that we're fallen and we have issues. And that's what goes back to we don't work for God's love. We don't try and keep the law commands to earn God's love. God's love already has been given. And I can tell you, once you experience God's love, you desire to keep the law. You desire to keep his commands because I love him. Because he's a good father. Like my kids love me, desire to do things that don't disappoint me. It's the same thing. My kids don't do things to try and earn something my love. They know I love them. It's given. They know that. So the gospel brings liberty. The gospel also brings clarity of equality. And we're going to end with the 6 through 10 in Galatians 2, real quick. I said, now from those recognized as important ones, 
what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, meaning Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. So I want us to see here is number two, the gospel brings clarity of equality. This is extremely important, equality, because I know we're big on equality, and we should be. But what the Bible says of equality, Romans 2, verses 11 and 12 says, one, there's no favoritism with God. Why? Because we're all equal. It says, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. What does that mean? Romans 3.23 means all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it means. That's where the equality is. We're all sinners. Just true, man. But then it says, they, being all of us sinners, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the point that we see here is gospel equality showed that there's only one people. Sinners in need of a Savior. That's all of us. Everyone's ever been created falls in this one camp. Sinners in need of a Savior. But the good news is that God didn't just leave us in our sinfulness. That would be an unloving, ungracious, unmerciful God, and he's not that. But from there, God does make a distinction. Dividing sinners into two groups by his grace. Namely, unbelievers and believers. Not the not doers and doers. Does that make sense? It's unbelievers and believers. The Bible uses other phraseology. Lost and found. Dead and alive. Foes and family. Primarily enemies and heirs. And it all revolves around how you answer one question. Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16, Who do you say that I am? It all revolves around how you answer this one question. Who do you say Jesus is? And this is the one that Peter actually knocked out of the park. If you know anything about Peter, he's the one that stuck his foot in his mouth more than anything else, right? He said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're the Savior. That's the only response, heart posture, that brings life in the relationship with your Creator that you were created to have. Forgiveness. But what we see here is gospel equality means we're all sinners in need of a Savior. There's no favoritism with God, so there shouldn't be any favoritism with one another. Also brings gospel unity. Number three, gospel brings unity. Notice the church leaders here did not divide divisively. They were, div- they were divided, but not divisively. They divided out of unity. Centered on the gospel, compelled by the gospel, carried by the gospel, and obedience to Jesus' great commission. So Paul was sent to the uncircumcised, meaning Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, as Peter was sent to the circumcised Jewish believers. That was there, what people would say, mission fields. But why do they do that? Jesus says, go. 
and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. So that's why they went, to make disciples. Disciples make disciples. That's what we do. As you go, it says baptizing. So we talk about baptizing does not require salvation, but it is an obedience issue. So what does that mean for you? If you're new to the faith, your next step is to be baptized. And baptized means submersion. Oftentimes we get cute and say baptized by submersion to clarify, but all we're really saying is submersed by submersion. It's really silly. So your next step is to be baptized. Out of obedience to Christ, follow on him to show everyone your first outreach testimony to say, I am new. The old life of me is dead, been buried with Christ, and I've now been raised with Christ to the walk in the newness of life. That's what baptism is, but we do it because of our love for God and because Jesus told us so. If you're not new to the faith and haven't been baptized, you need to do that. And it's not me. That's what Jesus says. This is what believers do. This is what being a disciple is. And it also says in Jesus' commissioning in Matthew 28, to teach, to observe, or obey all I've commanded. And that's part of the sanctification process. We continue to grow and to see what it is to follow Jesus. But what we see here and what they were doing is the disciples make disciples who make disciples. We multiply Unity that divides for the multiplying of disciple-making. This is interesting because this is a key element of being a disciple as you go and share the gospel and disciple those who believe, and we keep doing that. And this is a key element of our discipleship groups. This is why our discipleship groups are not a typical Bible study. And we actually use the phrase, this is not a Bible study, because of our cultural Bible studies that we've been so engrossed in. I mean, think about all the Bible studies you've been a part of. You go, you get some good knowledge, and you walk away until next week, and you go and get some good Bible knowledge, and we don't do anything with it, if we're honest. And then we stay in our little holy huddles. Is God going to reach the world for his glory if we continue to stick in our holy huddles, in our comfort areas? That wasn't his plan, and yet that's what we've done. And so a key element of our discipleship groups is to do the word that we're being shown in our groups and then to multiply because it's biblical. And it started in creation. God's command, be fruitful and multiply. To the Weatherspoon said, amen. That's what we do. But disciple making leads to churches planting churches. And churches planting churches, which is God's plan A for each in the world, leads to every people being reached, at least here in the gospel. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 14. says, the good news meaning the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This will happen. But it's going to go from us making disciples to planting churches to the nations here in the gospel. And what's interesting here in this passage is despite the Apostle Paul ministering to people in different regions, in different contexts, with different challenges than those in Jerusalem, they still enjoyed the unity because of the gospel. It all goes back to the gospel. Despite political differences, Despite economical differences, despite racial differences, despite social differences, the churches were united because of the gospel. Because it brings you quality and it brings unity. And also brings humility. And I think that's the secret sauce in all of it. Following Jesus brings a humility. When we realize we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, that's God's grace and God's love, but he gave it anyway. 
we're all sinners in need of a Savior, it should bring a humility in our life. I'm going to tell you a story. Don't judge me too quick. I was watching a 60 Minutes clip the other day about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay? Bear with me. I know it sounds sillier as I say it out loud. The band had, I was curious because they've been together a long time. They've been together since the late 80s. This four-person band, which is just extremely rare in the rock and roll lifestyle that you may know of. Just engrossed in sex, drugs, rock and roll, pride, money, all these things usually split up a band pretty quick. Yet they had sustained for all these years. And they're talking to him, how? Why? How do you do it? And they never said the word. But what they did say, and they continued to communicate, was that they valued one another higher than themselves. They had a humility in this band that kept them together through some differences and challenges that they go through. There's a humility of willing to put their pride aside and consider someone else's point of view, someone else's input, considering them all as equals in this band. Now my question is, if the Red Hot Chili Peppers get it, how come the church can't get it? How come our Christian families can't get it? Philippians 2, 3 through 5. If you don't have a family memory verse or a personal memory verse or whatever memory verse, let this be one. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That's a lot of stuff, nothing. But in humility, considering others is more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude of that as Christ Jesus. You want to know the secret to marriage? That. Secret to a unity of family? This. Secret to the unity of the church? Adopt the same attitude of that as Christ Jesus. It goes on to say, as he humbled himself as a servant, even to the point of the cross. You want unity? You want equality? This starts with the gospel. It brings freedom. It brings liberty in the gospel. I don't know about you, but it's relieving that knowing that I don't have to work at earning God's love. I don't have to be afraid of even losing God's love because maybe I don't, I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. Or I don't know what God would have me to do, and I'm afraid. He's not some kind of heavy-handed father who's looking just ways to discipline his son or daughter just for fun. It's not that. We have freedom to live and enjoy the relationship with God that was given to us through faith in Christ Jesus by his grace. I think we just need to live and be comforted by how amazing that truth is. There's a t-shirt that I saw recently. We go to the, I like going to the gym, and so it's a funny t-shirt. I had a picture of Jesus, right? But it's a picture can whatever that looks like. Guy that's supposed to be Jesus deadlifting. And it says, Jesus, the ultimate deadlifter. Loved it. Maybe a little irreverent. I don't know, but I liked it. I thought it was funny. But isn't that the truth? Like, Jesus is the difference maker. The gospel is the ultimate division demolisher. In our community, country, churches, our families. I was thinking about what Jesus has done for us, and he has done the heavy lifting for us. 
He did it. He dragged his own cross to the place where he'd be crucified. So you don't have to. He did that on our behalf. And as he was crucified, nail-pierced hands and feet, pushing up on every breath that he took because he's suffocating because of the weight of his body on the cross, to finally and fully say in his last breath, it is finished. Meaning, whoever would believe has eternal life, and that life starts at the moment you believe. My question is, do you believe? Who do you say Jesus is? He's either a son of God or a liar and a lunatic. That's what C.S. Lewis says. I'm reading through Job, and I'm going to end with this, kind of. It's pastor talking, so I'm almost done. Job, when he is encountered with God in Job 42, he says this to God. He says, I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. There's so many of us that have heard a lot about Jesus, heard a lot about God. I've been praying by the power of the Holy Spirit that he shows himself to you so you can finally now fully and finally see and surrender to the beauty that is Jesus, which brings repentance into new life. And that brings freedom. Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. 2 Corinthians 3.17 is now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but I'm going to ask you to respond. Like we do every single Sunday, I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and we're going to respond and continue to worship through singing. But I'm going to encourage you to respond by worshiping how the Lord leads. I'm going to lead us in prayer as the band comes up. We're going to pray. pray. But I don't encourage you to respond right now. So maybe for the first time, maybe you realize, I've known a lot about Jesus and missed Jesus. I believe. If I asked you right now, how do you know that you've been forgiven of your sins? And if you say anything else besides, I believe that Jesus did that for me then there's no forgiveness there. If it comes by way of, well, I've grown up in church, I do all these things, I serve and weigh kids, right? Praise God. Those things do nothing for you for eternal significance. It starts with belief. So do you believe? And if you believe, have you strayed? I want this to be a time of just repentance, which is good. Ask God to show you areas that where you've fallen short, where you strayed, where... Maybe you've even missed it. And God will forgive you when you ask for it. He's faithful and just to cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness. You want the Holy Spirit to pour out, to be refreshed, feel God's, the weightiness of God's presence? It starts with a dependence on Him. We pray for revival and yet don't want to do the hard work of God, search me and reveal in me the uncleanness. It starts with us. We want to be refreshed. We want to encounter God. It starts with us. So can we be humble enough to say, God, I need you so much. Matter of fact, I need you so much, I don't even realize how sinful I am. Show me. And then respond in worship because he's a good father, desires to have a healthy relationship with his children.
So I'm going to invite us to pray. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond. So maybe for you, that's responding by singing. Maybe for you, it's by staying seated and praying. Do that. Praying with someone around you. Praying with the prayer team over you here, but respond to what God is doing in this place. Because he has not brought you here by accident. So you respond to God's leading. Let me pray for us. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for the reminder of your goodness and your grace and how we can rest in the freedom that you have given us in Christ Jesus. The freedom to stop working for your accepting. The freedom from having to sin to be satisfied. Our satisfaction rests in you. Our security rests in you and your loving kindness and what you did for us on the cross when we didn't ask for it, deserve it. You proved your own love for us by taking our place on the cross. That So whoever believes in you has eternal life. And so right now, we just ask that you search us and reveal to us areas that we've sinned, we've fallen short, and we've rejected and rebelled against you. And we ask for forgiveness. I ask on behalf of the church as a whole that you forgive us of our sinfulness and our waywardness and our selfishness. Restore us, refresh us, because you're a good father. So as you just reveal sin in our lives, also reveal your refreshing and forgiveness that's available in you because we are called sons and daughters of yours through Christ Jesus alone. So Lord, have your way in this moment. Move your spirit in this place. Bring a newness of us that launches us into this new day, into this new week, focused on your glory and your purpose in our life because you alone are worthy. Help us bring humility to ourselves. Bring a humbleness to our heart. Show us any pride to where we are tempted to lean on our own selves, our own understanding, and reject you because we are self-sufficient. Help us to resist that lie that's strictly from the devil. Lead us in worship, Father. Lead us in boldness to worship you. We thank you, Father. We pray this in the name that's above every other name, the name that there's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.